Well, as I looked around this morning, I wondered how many people were going to be here this evening. I thought it might be a situation that was such that uh, when we look back in the annals of Bethel history, we would be able to say, I was there. <laughs> but there were more of you than I thought there might be, so that's good. And I suspect we haven't broken any records this evening. So uh, there, there you go. So let's um, just turn to God in prayer before we look at his word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken with such authority uh, and with, uh, with power. And we pray that as we look at your word this evening, even though it's perhaps difficult to comprehend and there are strange ideas being presented, we pray that uh, you would give us that faith to believe that this is your word, uh, that it is relevant to us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, and we pray that, uh, that the lessons from it would be applied to our hearts so that we can be encouraged and built up in our faith so that we might serve you better. Um, we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've uh, all heard of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, I wonder if uh, you've ever heard of the stork-winged flying refuse removal women. Well, we're going to meet them this evening as, we, uh, as the weirdness continues in Zechariah. Um, last time we, we looked at the sick vision, which we found in the first four verses of Zechariah chapter 5. And you remember that Zechariah was shown a, a massive flying scroll that had writing on both sides. And we saw that that represented the Lord's curse that, that would come upon individual sinners. They would be purged out from God's people and banished from his presence because he is a holy God and his people must be holy. And we recognised that we are all sinners uh, and we all deserve such judgment. Uh, and apart from faith in Christ... That's exactly what we'd get. The only way to, to avoid banishment from the presence of God is to have Jesus uh, suffer that banishment in your place. So that, that that sick vision was about purifying God's people by means of a curse from God on individual sinners. Now as we come to the seventh vision, which takes up the rest of uh, of chapter 5, um, we find that in some ways it's very closely related to, to the previous vision. Uh, but instead of concentrating on how God deals with individual sinners, it, if you like, widens the, the, the scope to show how God deals with wickedness in general. So let's start by uh, looking at what Zechariah actually saw in this vision. Uh, once again, there's some very peculiar 
imagery uh, being used here. So, so we need to be very clear about what he actually saw before we attempt to interpret it. In verse 5, we see that the angel alerts Zechariah to the fact that another vision is uh, appearing. He says, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. It seems that Zechariah wasn't sure what, what he was seeing because in verse 8, uh, as has often been the case with the previous visions, Zechariah asked a question. Uh, and the question he asked was, what is it? Uh, and we see the angel replied, this is the basket that is going out. And it, it seems strange, doesn't it, that Zechariah didn't seem to recognise something uh, as commonplace as a basket. Um, perhaps he had to ask because the vision, if you like, was still appearing and it wasn't fully visible. I, I, I don't know. But he asked what it was. Now, the Hebrew word that's been translated here uh, as basket is actually ephah. And uh, an ephah was a unit of measurement. It was the largest dry measure that was in use. And it would be equivalent to about five gallons. Or if you prefer metric, that's about 23 litres. And although uh, an ephah was literally a unit of measurement, it had also come to be used as a term for any sort of container uh, that could be used as some sort of measure. And you know, such measuring baskets would have been in evidence, say, at, at harvest time, to measure the grain and measure the other crops and so on. So there was nothing unusual uh, about an ephah, whether it be as a, a literal measurement or, or whether it be as a, a, as a basket, as a, a container. Um, in all probability, when Zechariah asked, what is it? What he really meant was, well, what does it mean? What's this vision about? And that seems to be confirmed because the angel went on to give some explanation uh, of the meaning of the basket by saying, this is their iniquity in all the land. Now, no doubt those words were quite helpful for Zechariah, but for us, the translation here is a little bit confusing. Um, the, the, the ESV, and in fact, uh, uh, the, the NIV as well, uh, that, that they both use that word iniquity. And they've used that word iniquity because they follow the Septuagint. That's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But you see, the Hebrew word for iniquity is slightly different from the, the word that actually appears in the text. It, it's, it, it's, it's similar, but it's different. It's not the same. Um, and it seems that the translators of the Septuagint thought that iniquity made better sense and that there must therefore have been a copying error in the text. The, the actual word that appears in the text um, literally means I, as is indicated by the footnote that you have in, in the ESV. Um, there's also a footnote in the NIV which suggests <coughs> appearance. And the New King James Version actually translates it 
as resemblance. So obviously all a far cry from iniquity. Uh, so it seems that the text is, you know, if we assume that there isn't a copying error and it, the original text is as was written, that then it seems that the text <coughs> is really saying that the basket shows how the people of the land look, how they appear. Uh, the, the sense seems to be something like this is a measuring basket and it shows how the people measure up. So it's not specifically referring there to iniquity, but it's, it's rather the idea of, of the people being, being measured, being assessed, seeing how they stand up. So, something about the people of Judah was being measured. And the obvious question then to ask is, what was being measured? Well, what was in the basket? Well, Zechariah couldn't see to start with because the basket had a, a lead cover over it. But we're told in verse 7 that this lid was lifted off and Zechariah was then able to, to see what was inside. And what he saw must have come as a complete surprise. Um, you know, he didn't see grain, as he would probably be expecting, uh, but he saw a woman. He, he was seeing uh, this measuring basket, and, and that's ordinary enough, but seeing that it contained a woman seems very strange indeed. If it really had a literal capacity of one ether, then she must have been quite a tiny woman. Um, you know, an ether... You can perhaps think of it as being about half the capacity of your car's petrol tank. So imagine trying to fit two women in your car's petrol tank. Uh, oh, clearly, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, and besides being absurd, your car wouldn't go very far either, would it? But if she was a full-size woman, well, then it must have been a pretty big basket. So the very absurdity of, of the picture really tells us uh, that the meaning of this vision lies beyond any literal uh, understanding of what was being seen. This strange vision would have been utterly baffling. But once again, the angel gave a word of explanation. So there, at the beginning of verse 8, he said, This is wickedness. The woman was in the basket... And she represented wickedness. So what the Lord was, was measuring was the wickedness of the people of the land. Now it seems as though the woman tried to escape from the basket. Because as soon as the lid was lifted, um, as we see there in, in verse 7, uh, we're told that the angel thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So wickedness, this woman, tried to get out, but was held back and kept confined. So the, the basket wasn't only being used to measure wickedness, it was also being used to, to contain wickedness or imprison it. As if this isn't all bizarre enough, then in verse 9, more strange things start to happen. Uh, we see that two women came forward and we're told that they had wings like the wings of a stork. 
I don't know if it's significant, but it's interesting to note that, that storks are included in the list of unclean birds in, in Leviticus verse 11. Um, Chris didn't comment on, on storks, but they're there on the list. Now, these strange women lifted up the basket, uh, and it, it wasn't just being lifted off the ground so someone was, was picking it up. Uh, it was being lifted high up into the air, because the text says it was between heaven and earth. It's as though a collection was taking place and the basket full of wickedness was being flown away. You know, we're told that the wind was in their wings, suggesting that it was being removed speedily, rapidly. Uh, seeing that was the cue for another question from Zechariah. In verse 10, he asks, where are they taking the baskets? And we have the angel's answer there in verse 11, where he said, to the land of Shinar. Now, of course, the land of Shinar is, is Babylon. Um, it, it was where man had arrogantly declared uh, independence from God, where men had asserted their trust in their, their own abilities by building the Tower of Babel. And that's what gave uh, rise to the name Babylon. So where were they taking the basket? Well, the answer was to the land of Shinar or the country of Babylonia, as it says in, in the NIV. Different names for the same place. Why was it being taken there? Well, the angel said uh, to build a house for it. So it wasn't merely being taken away. It was being taken to a place that was being specifically built for it. And what's more, the angel went on to say, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Well, the NIV translates that as, when it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. So it wasn't merely being taken to this place that was being built for it. You'll notice both versions speak of it being set there. Uh, and the word um, translated set doesn't simply mean being placed there or, or, or put down. It, it means fixed there. It means um, placed there permanently. You know, we sometimes speak of something being set in concrete, don't we? Uh, and when we say that, well, we don't literally mean that we've got the cement mixer out. What, what we mean is that it's, it's immovable. It's permanent. It, it can't be changed. So the picture is of wickedness being taken far away to a place where it belongs and being fixed there. So it, it can't return, that there's no coming back. It's as though it's being taken to, to prison and locked up so it can't escape, never uh, to come back. That's what Zechariah saw. Uh, what does all that mean? What are we to understand from that? And I have to admit, there's a lot about this vision that's very difficult to understand. Um, I think this is probably the most difficult of all of that series uh, of eight visions. Um, so rather than uh, attempting to impose a, a forced meaning uh, upon the vision, I, I simply want to concentrate on what 
to me, seems reasonably clear. I love the word reasonably. <laughs> What's immediately evident is that the central subject of the, the vision it is the concept of wickedness. And it's really showing us how the Lord relates to wickedness and how he deals with wickedness. Overall, uh, the overall message from this vision, I think, is that no matter how great wickedness seems to be, no matter how bad uh, things seem to get, it's never outside of God's control. Uh, and that's a, a truth we, we so need to grasp, don't we? You know, when we see wickedness growing on on every hand uh, and almost all uh, seeming to, to triumph, it, it could so easily drive us to, to despair, couldn't it? But when we, we grasp the truth that the Lord always has it under his control, then we have every reason for comfort and for confidence. So I, I simply want to notice four things from this vision about how the Lord deals with wickedness. Uh, and the first two points uh, really tell us what, what he's always doing about wickedness. And then the second two points tell us what he's ultimately going to do about wickedness. So firstly, what, what the Lord is always doing about wickedness. Uh, and the first thing I think we see is that the Lord contains wickedness. The Lord contains wickedness. Um, if you like, you could say the Lord always keeps a lid on it. Wickedness is there, but the Lord keeps a lid on it. I think that's evident from verse 7, where we see that the basket had a cover over it. Uh, and, and the surprising thing to notice is that the lid that covered the basket was made of lead. It, it was a, a leaden cover. And you certainly wouldn't expect... Uh, a normal basket to have a lead cover on it, would you? Uh, a measuring basket wouldn't have a lead cover. But what do you know about lead? Well, it's a very dense metal. So the lid would be a very heavy lid. It wouldn't be very practical if it was simply intended to keep the contents covered. You know, every time you wanted to take a bit of grain out of your basket, if you had to get three fellas along to lift this lead lid, it's not in any way practical. It's, it's ridiculous. But the, the, the point is that the, the, the lid is very heavy. It, it was there to, to keep what was inside inside. It was stopping, uh, stopping wickedness from escaping. So we see that um, when the lid was just lifted a little bit, the woman tried to escape and she had to be pushed back in. The point is that if it was not restrained, wickedness would spread like, like wildfire. So the, 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 the woman was pushed back in, uh, given half a chance... She'd have been out uh, and away. That, that's the nature of wickedness. It wants to spread. But God keeps it in check. He, he contains it. He restrains it. He keeps a lid on it. 
I think that's an important part of, of what we commonly called, called common grace, isn't it? But when you hear that term, common grace, uh, I guess we tend to think immediately of the words of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, recorded in Matthew 5, 44 to 55. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. So God the Father causes the sun to rise on those who are evil as well as those who are good. He sends the rain to fall uh, again on the, those who are unrighteous as well as those who are uh, unright as well as those who are righteous, and that's undoubtedly a, a wonderful example of of common grace. It's God providing good things for all, even though such blessing uh, is undeserved. But God's common grace isn't only seen in, in such undeserved blessing. It's also seen in his restraining wickedness for the benefit of all. You just try to imagine how awful life would be if wickedness was unrestrained, if everything was as bad as it could possibly be. So thank God that he keeps a lid on wickedness. And were it not for that, that I'm quite sure that mankind would have destroyed itself long before now. But God exercises common grace for as long as he plans to exercise saving grace. That that's why he keeps a lid on wickedness. It's so that the gospel can be preached, so that people can hear, so that people can come to faith in Christ. But besides containing wickedness, we see the Lord measures wickedness. We see that because wickedness is described as being in a, a measuring basket. Uh, we see he doesn't only keep it confined, but, but he's measuring it. It's not just uh, so that he can record a figure to file away some, somewhere. He's not some sort of geek that likes to keep a track on these things just out of, out of interest. No, he's watching the measure fill up uh, until, it reaches, uh, until it reaches the limit that he's set for wickedness. Uh, once the limit's been fully reached, then he'll do something. He'll act. If you like, there's a, an action limit in, in place there. But remember that the ether was the largest measure in use. Uh, and that tells us that the Lord, if you like, he hasn't set a small limit on wickedness. Why is that? It's because he's long-suffering. He isn't quick to judge. Because there's the gospel message of salvation through faith in Christ that, that needs to be preached. And, and sadly, uh, people foolishly mistake this gracious slowness to act uh, as an indication that he never will act. Or, or even that he's, he's powerless to act, that he's unable to do anything. That that's the way uh, Peter said that people would think. There in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, uh, he said, Knowing this, first of all, 
that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that is the way that people tend to think, isn't it? They argue nothing ever seems to change, so nothing ever will change. Therefore, we'll go on doing as we please. We'll go on being ungodly. Nothing will happen. But you see, Peter went on to remind them that God taking drastic action against wickedness it is not unprecedented. He reminds us of how God sent the flood, that what figured that cataclysmic judgment. Well, we're, we're told in, in Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, the wickedness of man at that point had reached a limit. They'd reached the limit that God was prepared to tolerate. And so he acted in judgment by, by sending the flood. So not only is the Lord restraining wickedness at the present time, he's also measuring it until it reaches the limit that he's set. What will he do when that limit is reached? Well, that brings us to, to the, the next point where we see from the vision uh, what the Lord is ultimately going to do about wickedness. And firstly, we see that the Lord will remove wickedness. In the vision, we see uh, that the Lord will lift wickedness away. In verse 9, those two women with stalks' wings come and they lift up the basket with wickedness inside it. Um, you could think of that as some sort of refuse collection. If you like, you know, the bin men will be sent because the bin's full. Now, I'm sure your dustmen don't look anything like these uh, stalk-winged women, but you get the point. It was clear to Zechariah that they were coming to take it away because he then asked the question, where were they taking the basket? So you, you see the picture. When wickedness reaches its limits, when the measure is full, the Lord will take it away. He'll send in his flying refuge remo removal women and wickedness in its entirety will be removed. I think you can infer a couple of points uh, uh, about this from, from the imagery that's used. Firstly, notice that Zechariah said of these flying refuge removal women, that the wind was in their wings. It, it suggests speed. That the removal of wickedness will happen swiftly. It might be a long time in coming, but when it does come, it will be sudden. It will be decisive. Uh, the, the passage we saw in 2 Peter spoke of, uh, of uh, judge, the judgment be by fire, and that it will come suddenly and spread rapidly. And the passage spoke of the day of the Lord coming uh, as a thief in the night. So it's going to be quick and it's going to be unexpected that the removal of evil will be swift when it happens. And secondly, notice that these women with storks' wings lift the basket high into the air. 
and we're told that it would be between earth and heaven. Now, storks are, are migratory birds. Uh, so when they fly low, they're on a, a short local trip. You know, they're they're going to get a few twigs for their nest or they're popping down the shops or something like that. But when they fly high, then they're on a long migratory journey. So the picture seems to be that when wickedness is finally removed, it's going to be taken far away. How far? Well, in verse 11, we're told it's all the way to Babylon. In the vision, wickedness is lifted uh, from Jerusalem and taken all the way to the land of Babylon. Uh, and geographically, that might not seem to be such a great distance. But, but, in, but of course, this is all, all symbolic. And what's being symbolised is the fact that the time is to come when all wickedness will have been lifted up from, if you like, the spiritual Jerusalem and taken away to the spiritual Babylon. And they are light years apart. They're complete opposites. It's telling us that there will be no wickedness in, in the new heaven and new earth. All wickedness will have been removed far away to hell itself. The last thing to notice is that besides removing wickedness, that the Lord, if you like, will incarcerate wickedness. You could say he'll lock it up and throw away the key. You see that from verse 11. We're told there will be a house or a temple built in Babylon. And once it's ready, the basket filled to the limit with wickedness will be set there. And remember, that means it will be there permanently. Uh, as though setting concrete. Um, you know, it makes me think of, uh, of nuclear waste that's so toxic that the only safe way to dispose of it is to encase it in concrete. Well, wickedness is, is toxic, but it's going to be, as it were, encased in concrete. So that this temple for wickedness will be uh, a prison for wickedness. Wickedness will be locked up there uh, so that its toxicity will never be able to cause any harm again. And therefore, the message is that when the Lord finally takes wickedness away, it won't come back. When he lifts it away, it will be locked away forever. So when we are disturbed by the wickedness of this world, well, firstly, we need to... Remember that it's nowhere near as bad as it would be were it not for the Lord restraining it. But, but secondly, uh, and even better still, remember that the Lord is ultimately going to do away with wickedness altogether. Uh, in place of a world characterised by, by wickedness, those who are the Lord's will enjoy something glorious that knows nothing of wickedness at all. We, we read uh, Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. 
and there will be no nights there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that's what we have to look forward to. And that surely should give us great comfort and great confidence as we make our way in this world with all of its all of its wickedness and all of its difficulty and all of its hardships and so on. I think so in some ways this parallels what John T was saying this morning. He wasn't talking specifically about wickedness, but he was talking about opposition, being in a world that doesn't get us, doesn't understand us, is a, opposed to us. But we, we had wonderful encouragements there, didn't we? And whatever the opposition, whether it be the opposition of, of people in a personal way or, or the wickedness of this world in general, uh, the bottom line is that the world is the Lord's and he's in control. Um, he's dealing with it moment by moment and he's going to deal with it once and for all uh, in the end. So let's be encouraged by knowing what a great God we have. Amen.